sharing your testimony of God's work in your life, uh, not just in uh, the most recent of months, but just a, the testimony of God's grace at work in you for many months past. It's really annoying me how dark it is in here. Can somebody hit those back side lights? Because you're going to fall asleep, I am pretty sure. And if you don't, I might. So, And that helps too. Thank you, Mark. La, there was light. I think it's the first two um, push buttons. There you go. Let me pull these side. There you go. Thanks, Keith. Now we can see each other. Appreciate that. Uh, it's been a joy, as I said earlier on, to see how God has been at work in Caitlin and to just in very small ways walk this path with her. She has pursued an internship and to see how God brought things together uh, way outside of her control or anyone else's um, into her path and to direct and lead her to uh, partner with Mika and Fabi. And um, I don't know them, but I know some of their connections in ministry. The Bridge Bible Fellowship out in California uh, is a church I'm familiar with and have friends who have served there. And it's a, an incredibly strong church uh, and just very thankful to hear of that connection for Mika and Fabi um, and very excited about what they're doing in uh, Denmark. Um, so I, I know you will pray for Caitlin and you will get her updates through the office if you're signed up for missionary updates that way but certainly sign up for them personally if you would appreciate that as well. And let me encourage you to support her financially, uh, and you can see how to do that by talking to her through the website with BMW or by mail, and just encourage her efforts in this way as she seeks to uh, seek out what the Lord has for her um, and how he wants to grow her through this. Her testimony is a tremendous transition to then our summer Sunday evening series. Mark, there's a lot of feedback going on. I'm not sure what's, if that's me or... Something else, hard to know sometimes. Thank you, brother. Uh, as we head into the summer Sunday evening uh, series, we want to lay the groundwork for that tonight. And I have the privilege of kind of giving you a, a theological, um, just a, a constant battering of truth to cement in your minds how important your service to the Lord is. And to call you uh, in an encouraging way, I trust, to strengthen your serve. Uh, and I don't mean by that your volleyball serve or your tennis serve or anything else. I mean your service to the Lord. And so we're going to, over the next few months as elders, take a different Sunday night along the way and um, take time to speak to you from the Word. Uh, and what our desire is, is to profile men and women who have served our Lord well and to lay before you what we can learn from them about how we should serve our Lord better. So that's kind of the, the overall general logic of the series. I want to lay for you the groundwork tonight and call you to be those faithful servants of our Lord. Uh, as we get to those uh, faithful servants and their profiles, I want to, before that, give you the, the truth that undergirds the whole thing. I want to make this compelling biblical case to you for uh, what you should be doing in giving yourself to serve the Lord, um, but also to, to keep you... Uh, interested and involved in, invested in the preaching of the word that would encourage you to do that better. Um, as I thought about coming to Newton Bible Church uh, in 2011, I have been reminiscing about that because we, we're doing NBC 101 in our Sunday school and I've been thinking through our church's history and my relationship to the church. And one of the things that stuck out to me as we got to know the church better was how many servants of the Lord were faithfully and fervently serving him. Uh, and who had been doing that for decades in a specific role within the body of Christ that uh, most other churches aren't going to hear about, but God knows, and God was honored by their service. And it just grabbed me 
with how faithful and fervent so many of our servants here at Newton Bible were, and that has not changed. It's only, I've only seen more of the depth of that in our body. So this is not intended to call you to something you're not doing. Uh, it's rather intended to strengthen that which you are already doing and to encourage you to improve and increase that which the Lord has already given you in ministry. To do that tonight, I want to just kind of lay the groundwork with two simple points, and they're, they're not rocket science, um, and we're going to run through a bunch of scriptures most of it, I'm just going to read a few of it you'll turn to, to overwhelm you with these two truths in a good way. The first is that we are saved to serve. We are saved to serve. And the second is we can strengthen our serve. Very simple thoughts, but also profoundly simple if you give it some thought. We are saved to serve, and we can strengthen our serve. Let's consider that first truth, saved to serve. As the Lord rescues us from our sin by his grace and calls us from darkness to light and from death to life. He does this not just so we can sit and soak and sour in his grace. He does this to accomplish something in and through us. Our salvation has nothing to do of our own effort, but after our salvation, it changes every effort. It makes all of our works different once we have come into contact with the glorious work of Christ to save us. Life in Christ truly then is for Service, to steal the phrase from Appalachian Bible College, life is for service. Christ gives you life in him for the sake of serving him. And that grace that he gives you should compel you to this holy service to the Lord. I'm going to reference some texts. You can turn there if you want, but you know these texts well. And how grace compels us to be servants. If the grace of God has fallen upon your heart, then it compels you to give your life as a sacrifice, living and active for him. Ephesians 2 is a text you know well of gospel truth calling us to the reality of being dead in our trespasses and sins, but alive in Christ through the mercy of God. And verse 8 makes it very clear this is not anything you've done. It's simply by the grace given to you. You've been saved through faith by that grace. And it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then the text goes on to say what you already know is coming next. For we are his workmanship. We are his project. We are his creation set aside to do something created in Christ Jesus, he says, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, you know this, but we in Christ have been saved for a purpose, and that purpose is good works in service to our king. We've been designed and created to accomplish something, just like that garden tool you pick up to go and use. That shovel can be used for lots of different things. It can be put in, in some kind of uh, strange decoration that makes it look all neat and fancy, but accomplishes nothing. It can be used to accomplish awful and horrific tasks, like taking someone else's life by perchance, but it is intended to accomplish something good. That's what it's designed to do. You can use your life lots of different ways, but your life in Christ by grace is designed and intended for good works, service to him. Romans 12, 1 and 2, one of my favorite texts in all of scripture is an explanation of this extension of mercy and how it impacts how we think about our lives before Christ. Paul, spending 11 chapters extolling to us the depth of the mercy of God, then says in Romans 12, 1, I beseech you, I, I urge you. This is not a polite invitation. 
This is not a, a slight beckoning call outside of your window. Please consider. No, this is an exhortation, a beseeching, a calling to your soul. I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, that you give your life, you lay down your life as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service or your only responsible act of worship in light of the mercy you've been given. In light of what God has done to rescue your soul from the realities of your own sin, you ought then lay down this life in sacrificial worship back to him. Maybe you've heard this story before, but as Abraham Lincoln came to his presidency, before he came to his presidency, he was a lawyer, and he squared off against a man named Edwin Stanton, who just obliterated him in one of the cases that they were arguing uh, opposite sides of, and Stanton became very vindictive to Lincoln, rubbed it in his face every opportunity that he had. And when Lincoln became president, he reached out to Stanton and invited him to be his secretary of war. Maybe this was the old adage that you keep your friends close and your enemies closer, I don't know. But he gave this invitation to Stanton. And when Stanton learned of this, he was overwhelmed and with tear-filled eyes, he accepted this honor and he said to the messenger, tell him that such magnanimity will make me work with him as man was never before served. Having been shown so much mercy by Lincoln, Stanton couldn't help but say, I will do it to the best of my ability and serve Lincoln every opportunity I have. That is a small glimpse of what we should be in response to the great grace and mercy of God to us in Christ. And then in the book of Titus, you know this text well because we've been working through Titus before we jumped into the summer series. In Titus 2, 11 to 14, Titus is told by Paul that the grace of God has appeared unto us to rescue us, to save us, but not just to save us, also to sanctify us, to change us, to teach us and train us how to be self-controlled and upright and godly in this present evil age. And the text goes on to, to speak of the glorious work of that grace in our lives to make us a people for Christ's own possession. In verse 14, he says of Christ, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. He could have left it there. Possessed by Christ, he could, he could have just stopped there, but he did not because there's more to say. We are his own possession who are zealous for good works, zealous in service to our king. You see, if the grace of God has grabbed your soul out of the pit of hell and rescued you from the reality of death eternal and has set your feet aright in life and light and eternal peace with God, then he has done so to make you be a servant for him, for his glory, and to make you zealous for good works. It's easy to, in grace, soak and get comfortable, be doused in the reality that my sins are forgiven, and they are. I'm cleansed, and you are. I need do nothing more, and you don't. But to get so used to all these thoughts that you just get lazy in your pursuit of Christ. However, grace ought do the opposite. That's not a product of grace. That's a, a product of your own selfish twisting of grace. Grace always impacts you to move you to glorify Christ through sacrificial service to him, making you zealous for him. 
That's the compelling nature of grace. We're saved to serve. To kind of expand that study a little bit, think of how the New Testament describes us as believers, as those who have been rescued from our sin and know peace with God through his son. Think of of some of the terms that the scriptures use to describe us as followers of Christ. Well, you know the, the main one is disciple. But that disciple term gets morphed as you kind of work your way through scripture to be slave or servant. What does it mean to be a disciple? It means to be a servant like Jesus was a servant. He who came to to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what it means to be his disciple. We'll get to this soon in the book of John, but John 12 soon, in a few months. John 12, 23, Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You see the logic of that text. Jesus calls us to be his disciples, calls us to to follow him, which will lead ultimately to his glory, calls us to follow him in dying like he has died, to be like that kernel of wheat willing to fall into the ground, not desirous of our own lives, hating our own lives in this world so that we might keep it for eternal life. And that looks like, as he says in verse 26, service to Christ. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to be a servant. Luke 17, verse 10, Jesus, when he speaks of the reality of his disciples to them, how they should think about themselves. He says this, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. This is how Jesus instructs us to think about our activity for him, our service for him. We are merely doing that which we are called to do. In Acts 26, 16, Paul is describing his conversion experience when Christ accosted him on the road and dropped him to the ground and appeared to him in a bright light. And he says in Acts 26, describing to Agrippa what happened on that day, he says, Jesus said, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me, you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. First Corinthians 4, 1 and 2, Paul takes this to heart and he says, how should you regard us as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God? Moreover, it is required, he says, of stewards that they be found faithful. See, servants are simply stewards. They're, they're simply doing their job with what they've been given to do. And they're doing it according to what their master has told them to do. They're simply accomplishing a task entrusted to them by someone else who is in charge. Paul says, how should you think about me? How should you think about me, one of the chief apostles of the New Testament, the one who wrote 13 of the 27 New Testament letters, one who lit the Gentile world on fire with the gospel of Jesus Christ? How should you think about me? As a servant, an unworthy servant who just did what I was called to do. Romans 16.1, Paul describes our sister Phoebe as a servant of the church. 
This is her accolade to the church of Rome. She is a servant of the church. Philippians 1, Paul describes him and Timothy as slaves of Christ Jesus. Do lost. They have no identity. They're owned by another. They have no agenda that they can make their own. Their, their life is not theirs. It's owned by their master. They are slaves of the one who bought them by his grace. They are servants. How else does the New Testament describe us as Christians? It also describes us as workers or as fellow workers. Romans 16 Verse 3, so I just referenced Romans 16, 1 about Phoebe. When Paul describes Priscilla and Aquila, he says they are my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Who Here's, here's how they served. They risked their necks for my life. To whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. A few verses later, 9, 10 verses later in verse 12, he says, Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. This is what Paul expected of God's people in Christ's church, rescued and saved by grace and lit on fire by that grace to fervently serve him in every possible way. In Philippians 2.25, he describes Epaphroditus as my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. All of that is a description of his service to Christ and to his church. Philippians 4, 2-3, Paul is correcting Euodia and Syntyche. He's telling them to agree in the Lord. But notice how he describes them. Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Apparently, to have your name in the book of life means to be a fellow servant with the Apostle Paul. That this grace that has rescued you, has changed you, has compelled you to serve is evidence of the life you've been given in Christ. So the New Testament describes Christians as disciples who are servants or slaves of Christ, workers or fellow workers. One last one to show you is members of one body. Romans 12, as it goes on from the personal reality of that mercy shown in verse 1 and how you should give your life as a living sacrifice to Christ. And it calls you to not be conformed to the world but be transformed by a renewing of your mind in verse 2. Then in verse 3, it says, now every one of us should be thoughtful about the grace given to us. We should think carefully about the grace that has been poured upon us and particularly the grace gift given to us. He says this in verse 4 to describe you as a Christian. For as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function, so we though many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, listen, let us use them. Let us use them. So you're members of one body as Christians, and being members of one body, you're a member that has a function that is not the same as the function of other members. And therefore, if the body is to function wholly and completely as designed by Christ, all members must be functioning, right? Isn't that the the funny, humorous word picture he gives us in 1 Corinthians 12? When he says the, the nose throws a fit because it's not the, or the toe throws a fit because it's not the head or whatever, whatever one he uses, I don't remember. 
It's, it's a hilarious illustration of the silliness of our way of thinking in the body of Christ. But the point of the health of the body is that every member is fulfilling its role. You know very well when your smallest part of your physical body is out of whack and not doing what it's supposed to do. The rest of your body knows something is wrong and is hindered in its health by that one member. This is very true also in the body of Christ. You have been given a grace gift by Christ and he expects you through the pen of Paul to use it as a member of the body, to be a servant of the body of Christ. And then just consider in another realm of thought to drive this point home, the example of Paul. So I've laid out before you how does the New Testament describe us as Christians. I've laid out before you the compelling nature of grace from texts like Titus 2 and Romans 12. Now just think about how does, how does Paul think about and describe himself when he talks about his service to the Lord. There are several texts we could go to, but some that just jump off the pages of the New Testament when you think of how he thinks about himself. Acts 20, verse 24, as he meets with the Ephesian elders and expresses to them their need to stand firm in the faith, he says to them, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. Your flesh will never say that. Nothing other than the powerful work of the Spirit of God upon your mind and your heart will bring you to say something like that. Because this is, this is humanly unnatural for us. To think of our lives as not precious to ourselves. He goes on to say, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He's a servant. He's a steward. This isn't about Paul. This is about his Lord, his master, and his mission. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, as he talks about the purity that should be there in the body of Christ, he says to them, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Brother, sister, if you have been purchased by the shed blood of Jesus, then how you view yourself is, is fundamentally different. And you know this, I'm encouraging you with this again because this atrophies in our worldview, our Christian worldview. If you don't remind yourself of these truths, if you don't run and return to the compelling nature of grace and who you are as a believer before Christ, you will start thinking the way of the world and the flesh and the devil. You'll start believing the lies that, that your life is precious to yourself, that you really are something that others really should serve you because you matter more than others and you wouldn't say it that way, but you start thinking and responding that way. And so Paul reminds us, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. And then maybe the most astonishing statement of all is in his second letter to the church at Corinth as he grieves over that church probably more than any other and yet rejoices over them as well comes to the end of his second letter, which is a painful one to write, as he 
defends his ministry and calls them to trust his service to them and his apostleship defends his stewardship of the gospel. He comes to the end of the book near the end in chapter 12, verse 15. He says to them, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. That's how Paul viewed his life. So much committed to serving Christ that he would gladly give himself to spend and be spent for your souls. Friend, I fear we're too soft in our service to the Lord. We, we would like to give a little here and give a little there, but mostly keep it in reserve. Paul had no reserve. He gave it all for the Lord. I know there's times for breaks and recreation, so you're restored in the Lord. Paul did that. Jesus did that with his disciples. Don't mishear me. But I think our threshold might be a little low. I know mine is. It starts to hurt a little bit. I want out. I don't want the pain of sacrificial service to my Lord, but this is what we're called to as servants of Christ. So we are saved to serve. Can I encourage you with our second point quickly is that we can strengthen our serve. That's been an encouraging and exhorting thought to me lately. I thought especially about my role as husband and father and pastor. Those three main areas in my life of service to the Lord and how much better I could do how much more faithful I could be in every one of those categories. And that's not, a, that's not a downer statement. It's just the reality. We all can grow and increase in our service in the roles God has given to us. I want you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy 2. That might be the latest time in a sermon I've ever called you to open your Bibles. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. As Paul calls Timothy to serve the Lord, he says this to him in chapter 2 of the second letter. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. We can strengthen our serve, and notice how Paul calls Timothy to strengthen his serve. He was timid in his service to the Lord as a pastor, and Paul reminds him, we've not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. He lays before him his own example in chapter 1, and now in chapter 2 he calls him to pursue faithfulness, greater faithfulness in service. Notice how it's all rooted in the strengthening grace of Christ in verse 1. He calls him first not to serve, but to be strengthened by grace. And so hear us in this series, not calling you primarily to serve and do, calling you primarily to be strengthened in grace. And being strengthened in grace, you will then serve. You will go forward in fervent service to him. This service, notice then, will be costly. We will suffer if we are good soldiers. He tells them very clearly in verse 3, share in that suffering as a good soldier. There's nothing 
fun or enticing or easy about being a soldier in a battle. There's nothing, nothing simple or ordinary about giving yourself to the task of being a foot soldier in a conflict like World War II or Vietnam. It's the, the worst of worst in situational realities. And you will suffer to be faithful. Paul says to be strengthened by grace and to serve, it will be costly. And then see what this service requires in verses 4 through 6. It requires the singular focus of the soldier. He calls you to, to put on the mindset of a soldier whose singular aim is to please his enlisting officer. In other words, a soldier has one job, and that's to do what he's told. And they break their will in their basic training Letting them know you are not to think on your own. You're to do what you're told. Don't think about it. Because their main job as a soldier is to do what they're told. Paul says to Timothy, you need to be like that. You need to be singularly minded, singularly focused, like the soldier, pleasing your commanding officer. Verse 5, he says it's going to take the the self-discipline of the athlete. So the singular focus of the soldier in verse 4 and the self-discipline of the athlete in verse 5, you need to compete according to the rules, he says. Don't take shortcuts or fast tracks. Don't look for the easy way out to get the medal in a way that is not according to the rules. Have the self-discipline to train hard and to work hard and to labor hard so that you can compete well. Number six, it's going to require the hard work of the farmer. We see this lived in front of us week in and week out by our, our men and women who farm in our community. Their work is never done, never completed, never accomplished. One harvest in, another harvest to plant and get ready. It is constant, endless, bone-breaking work. Paul says to Timothy, if you're going to be a faithful servant, you need to be like the farmer, working hard in the task so that you can enjoy the harvest. Then down, if you look down in verse 15 of that same chapter, he says to Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Do your best is a translation of a word that means to be hasty, to be zealous, be quick about it. Don't give any time for dust to settle. Hop to it and be about it. Do your hasty work. Make this your constant aim to present yourself to God, one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Paul said in the book of Romans, an often overlooked verse in chapter 12, that litany of commands after the, the grace compelling us to give our lives as a sacrifice in 1 and 2. Then he runs into these lists of commands from verses 9 to 19. You remember that section of Romans 12? Right in the middle of that he says this, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. This is what God made you to do. He made you to serve him. He made you to be fervent about that task. And he calls you to not be slothful, lazy, uncaring, disinterested in your commitment and pursuit of that service. As we try to encourage you in strengthening your serve over the next few months, one of the key encouragements we're going to use is how believers who've gone before us model this for us so well. So to close tonight, I'm going to ask you to turn to Hebrews 13 and verse 7, a text which has 
immediate application to those we know in our lives, but can be pointed back into church history and even biblical history to encourage us to follow their example. Hebrews 13. This follows Hebrews 11, in which Paul has laid out for us the hall of faith. Those who have faithfully believed the Lord and has compelled them to trust him, even though circumstances said differently. And they're lauded before you as people you should follow. Then in chapter 12, he gives you the greatest example of walking by faith for the joy set before you, and that's Christ. Now here in chapter 13, he gives you other examples to encourage you. He knows we need a lot of encouragement to be faithful, to continue to serve and to faithfully follow. And so he says to us in chapter 13 and verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. There's two commands in this text, remember and imitate. That consider is defining, imitating. So as you think about their faith and its outcome, imitate it, mimic it. So remember them and then mimic them. Take the best from their lives and mimic that in your life. Do what they did. Obey them in that way. Remember them in that way. So as we go through the next few months, we're going to ask the question, like, what can we learn about humility from John the Baptist? What can we learn about courage and clarity from Nathan the prophet? What can we learn about loyal relationships from Ruth? What can we learn about encouraging others from the life of Barnabas? What can we learn about getting back up after failure from the life of Peter? What can we learn about boldness and clarity of the gospel from the life of Chrysostom? What can we learn about self-sacrifice in missions from William Carey? Those and other questions we'll seek to answer as we walk through the next few months together. As we close tonight, I want you to consider this a call to arms. Now is not a time to be lazy in grace or slothful in zeal. Our commander is calling, beckoning us to be strengthened by his grace because we've been saved to serve. This is not going to look the same for all of us, as you know. Some of you in your later years of life can't do what you did in your earlier years of life. And that does not mean you're not serving the Lord. It means it looks different now. But it does not mean you cannot be zealous. You must still be zealous in your service to the Lord, though it takes a new shape. And so as you go your way, I want this to be a checkpoint for you as you evaluate your service to the Lord. What if you died immediately after the service tonight and you appeared before the Lord and all the, the stuff of life, obviously, immediately is burned away. And all that's left is that which you've done for him. As C.T. Studd once said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. May God help us. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for the grace you give to save us, and to sanctify us, and to strengthen us to be your servants. We ask that you would help us to kill our laziness, to put to death our slothfulness in zeal. Make us to be brothers and sisters in Christ who encourage and exhort one another to love and good deeds. 
And in so doing, Father, would you make us more faithful and more fruitful in our service to you? There's so much left undone in the areas of service you've called us to. The task is overwhelming. We are not fit for the task. But by your grace, you are able. So, Lord, in your omnipotence and in your nearness to us, would you move us along in the next part of the task? Would you help us to be faithful plotters like Hudson Taylor, just doing the next thing? And would you, in your kindness, then accomplish your purposes through us, whatever that may be? Would you help us to be faithful? Would you grow us in that this summer? Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. God's grace to you. You're dismissed.